On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Joshua Cocaine about the social ontology of the church. So we cover topics like what in the world does social ontology mean and why is it relevant for our understanding of the local church? How should we think about the church in relation to social ontology? What are the costs and the benefits of the various views on offer? And do individual Christians have particular responsibilities in relationship to the group or on behalf of the church and much, much more? I think the episode is fascinating. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am running solo for this episode, which means I am unchecked by Brandon Askew, our other general co-host. But that also means that I have to take up the mantle and ask all the good questions that he typically does. So... It's unfortunate he's missing this episode because I think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with our guest, uh, Dr. Joshua Cacane, uh hopefully I pronounced that right, uh, you know, with my American, unfortunate American accent. I'm always jealous of everybody across the pond of their awesome accents. I just feel like, especially for podcasts. I mean, it just makes for, for great listening. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, the social ontology of the church. And I think this is going to be really, really interesting and really neat. He's uh, got an article. The first one I found, uh, actually, it was in from him was in the Journal of Analytic Theology, which the great thing about Journal of Analytic Theology is that it's all open access. So people who are interested, they can actually go get it. You don't have to have university subscription. So I think probably half the listeners don't have access to a lot of the journals that are out there, but they do this one. So you can go up there, Google it, um, find it, and you can read the whole thing free, no, no strings attached. So I think that's probably the place to start. He's also got a chapter uh, that's relevantly similar in, I guess it's it's in the, Zon, it's in the Zondervan, I guess, series with uh, Los Angeles uh, Theology Conference. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the one that Oliver Crisp and Fred Sanders uh, edit. Yeah. That's right. So he's got a chapter on related to the church in that as well that I'll commend to you guys. And I'll put all this stuff in the notes for you so you can get it. But before we jump into to all that the topic is, uh, Joshua, why don't you introduce uh, yourself to our listeners a little bit? I imagine some of them are familiar with who you are. Some of them probably have no idea who you are or where you're located, what you do or anything like that. And then what got you interested in thinking about the social ontology of the church? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to come and talk about these things. I know that Jordan has written some stuff in this area as well, so hopefully this will be a really fun conversation for us to have um, this evening for me, whatever time you're listening. But um, so, yeah, I, my background is in philosophy. I did all of my education at the University of York. I uh, did a, a, a master's degree in uh, philosophy and theology, which was really uh, the kind of precursor to some of the analytic theology movement, some of the work that people like Mike Ray were doing. Um, and then I stayed on to do a doctorate there. My doctorate's on um, Soren Kierkegaard and the philosophy of Christian spirituality. So uh, in some ways, it feels, it feels kind of alien to the, stuff, the kind of stuff that I'm doing now. Kierkegaard is famously very <laughs> skeptical about the existence of the church and uh, yeah. the importance of the church. So, I mean, to answer your question, I suppose one of the reasons I'm interested in the church is I spent a few years reading Kierkegaard and was, as much as I love Kierkegaard and will keep coming back to him, I was deeply dissatisfied with where 
his vision of spirituality that was divorced from the life of the church. And so that really was the start of me thinking about ecclesiology. But anyway, I, I came up to St. Andrews in about four years ago to do a postdoc at the Logos Institute. And I've stuck around and I'm uh, on the teaching staff there now. So I teach on the, the, the master's degree in analytic and exegetical theology. And actually, I'm about to move on this summer, so I'm I'm heading into a, a full-time ministry post. Actually, I'm ordained in the oh. in the Anglican tradition, and I guess another answer to your question then: Why am I interested in thinking about the social ontology of the church? Is because the church is uh, something that I care very deeply about, something that I want to see thrive, and so it's a kind of natural place to go if I'm thinking about uh, what to what to write about. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. That's really interesting. I had no idea, first of all, that you uh, were going on. To, I guess take a position at a church. I think that's unique, um, at least in America. It would be. I don't know what the context is. How many, you know, serious academics are serving the local church at the same time or going to do that full time? So I think that's that's really one of the passions that we've had with the podcast is to try to to bridge this gap between uh, the academic world and the life of the local church. So. I think that's that's really awesome. And then the fact that you were studying Kierkegaard and I mean, I, I've read, I probably read, I don't know, 15 pages of Fear and Trembling and then never <laughs> ended up actually finishing it. So I, I really know next to nothing about him. But it's really interesting that he would uh, have a spirituality that was somewhat divorced from the local church. And I wonder, I'm just thinking out loud here, this is not related to the topic totally. But it does seem, at least in my own American evangelical context, that that is probably the default understanding of spirituality is it's divorced from a larger body or institutional body anyway. Yeah. And so I think that the key thing is, um, to be clear, I don't think Kierkegaard is skeptical about the need for being related to, to your neighbor. And, and for mm-hmm. instance, he thinks that uh, communion is the center of the church and should be the center of the church. Uh what he's skeptical about is the way in which in his time in in 19th century Denmark, there's a there's a, it's kind of synonymous being a member of the church and being a Christian, that if you're born Danish, you're a Lutheran and yeah, therefore yeah. Uh, you're you you belong to Christ. And so Kierkegaard wants to I mean, the line that he's famous for, he wants to draw the single individual away from the crowd. He wants to emphasize that Christianity is about the individual before God. Uh, and becoming contemporary of the person of Christ. And so that's yeah. crucial for Kierkegaard's spirituality. Um, and I think everything he writes is pretty polemical. So he wants mm-hmm. he's pushing back very hard against that kind of nominal Christian culture. I think there's still some space for thinking about ecclesiology in Kierkegaard, but I mean, he certainly doesn't yeah. go as far as I would want to go. Yeah. Well, that that's completely off topic from yeah. what I was interested in, but <laughs> you just got me all curious. So let's, let's just jump into what I really wanted to discuss here, which is the social ontology of the church. So I think probably to orient some of our listeners to understanding this discussion, maybe we start with just what is social ontology or group theory, and then why is that really relevant for understanding the church? Because I think if you talk to most probably like theologians, pastors, et cetera, um, they would say, well, I've never read any of this stuff, and why Why should I care about reading any of this stuff? I, I've got all these other polity books. What does this yeah. really help me understand and think about the church? Yeah, so so I think the thing to say with social ontology is that um, 
Primarily, as, as the name suggests, it's about understanding the nature of groups. So, I, I mean, first of all, just observe, we talk about groups in, in common speech all the time. Uh, we say, uh, I want to hold the government to account, or um, I don't know, we say, uh, so I'm, I'm a bit of a coffee snob, I would say, Starbucks really doesn't value decent coffee, right? I mean, that, to, <laughs> to say that is to say something about a group. Starbucks is not an individual. It's an organization which is comprised of many, many individuals that, that, that bring about some, some kind of group action. Um, but I mean, the thing is, the way we use group talk in our language is, is pretty inconsistent because not all groups are the same. So like uh, I might say, um, I, could, I could say the people in this room are really hungry. Um, or I could say, um, I could say something like, "People with red hair burn really easily, right?" So I'm here. Here, tons of examples of how of kind of trying to group people together in different ways. Um, but these are all we understand these all very differently. And so I think the crucial thing to notice, and I, a lot of people that work on social ontology are quick to point this out, is that talking about Starbucks acting in the world or the United States of America is very different to talking about people with red hair or the people in this room. And the reason for that is because they have a, a structure by which they can act or, or choose not to act. When we talk about uh, redheaded people, we're just kind of making, we're grouping together lots of individuals that we can say the same thing about. Um, and so really that kind of group talk just flattens out really quickly, as soon as we're talking about people that are just collected by their properties. But it gets interesting when we start talking about groups that have these kind of structural and um, organizational um, ways of acting in the world. Because we can start talking about things like moral responsibility. Um, and we talk about how, um, I, I keep I keep hating on Starbucks. I don't know if you have any like loyal Starbucks <laughs> listeners in your audience. But it's, I doubt it. It's my go-to. My wife loves their pink drink, but that's not coffee. So. Okay, but I mean, I, I don't know about that in in the US, but in the UK, there's a bit of a reputation that Starbucks is a bit of a a, a tax dodger. Um, <laughs> like they don't pay all their corporation taxes, or they find ways of paying less yeah. than they should. Yeah, but we can we can assess that morally by saying that Starbucks ought to have paid their, their corporation tax. And through the, the structures that are in place to allow Starbucks to act, they haven't done that. And so we can hold them to account in certain respects. So that, that, they're the kind of basic building blocks of uh, how we might start to think about social ontology. And then people in the, the philosophers that write about this stuff try and find the best ways to make sense of these kind of claims that we make about groups. And there are all sorts of different ways we might make sense of those things. But that, that's the kind of starting point of thinking about what social ontology is aiming to, to discuss. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, let me just start with someone who's skeptical of utilizing these types of tools of analysis to, to help understand the local church. I mean, do you have any ready-made like answers or examples to say, look, this is going to benefit you in your own local church or your local parish because of reason X, Y, and Z? Yeah, so I think that when this boils down to thinking about things at a congregational level, I think there are all sorts of reasons why this is important. Um, and so, I mean, think about cases in where, I mean, I think the cases that 
people in social ontology all, always go to are cases where things go wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So they talk about things like when oil companies cause large oil spills or when governments um, governments go to war with other countries unjustly. And um, the claim is that, that some kind of group analysis is needed to explain what's gone wrong here because there's no no individual to pin the blame on. There's no individual who's really responsible. It's the way in which individual actions have combined um, and the way in which structures are set up, which has meant that some wrongdoing has occurred. And I think, um, I guess we don't have to go into too much detail, but I mean, you don't have to look far in the church to see examples where clearly something has gone wrong that is uh, the result of not just some individual perpetrator doing something bad, but some kind of structural injustice, mm-hmm. um, some ways in which individuals have um, combined in such a way that perhaps none of their individual actions are that bad, but some great injustice has been caused because of the way they act. Yeah, so maybe at this point, help me map the terrain just a little bit on the options for how I should understand groups as agents because yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's a couple two ends of the spectrum and there's some variations within it. So walk right. me through some of the main positions. Yeah. I, so I find the best way to understand it probably because I've got a philosophy background is uh, I'm very familiar with the, I, when I first started reading this stuff, I was very familiar with the way in which the philosophy of mind works. So there's there's lots of discussion in the philosophy of mind about how minds are related to bodies. And you've got the whole spectrum of views from one end, people that think uh, there's just one substance and there's only one thing we should really refer to and all mm-hmm. mental properties reduced to physical properties. And then on the other end of that same spectrum, you've got the substance dualists who think there are minds and there are bodies and they relate, but they're distinct. Now, I think the same kind of mapping can be done with thinking about the relationship between individuals and groups. So there are people, a lot of philosophers I talk to are kind of on the one end of the spectrum and say, there's just there's no such thing as groups. We can just yeah. we can just refer to individuals acting and that's sufficient. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you find some people, particularly in the kind of um, 20th century um, social ontology and sociology literature, talking as if groups have this just almost like a distinct substance which can mm-hmm. act differently to individuals and which doesn't um, comes apart from individuals in all sorts of ways. So they're the extremes. But obviously, just like the mind-body question, there are all sorts of views in between. Yeah. Um, so I think, so the, the, the kind of view that I hold on social groups is like a functionalist account of the philosophy of mind. Which, so the, the functionalist says, when when brains act or when bodies act in a certain way and perform a certain function, uh, they give rise to thinking. Now, that's not to say anything about there being a distinct substance. It's just saying a certain arrangement of matter um, gives rise to thinking in a way which doesn't easily reduce one to the other. And that that's precisely the view that I hold on groups as well, which is when individuals coordinate their actions through certain structures, they can give rise to these group-level actions, which yeah. uh, even though there's nothing mysterious going on, it's not like I'm saying there's some weird, spooky group that I'm pointing at. Um, but nonetheless, I can't explain everything I need to say about groups just by pointing to individuals. That's the claim. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I probably, I like the similar terminology, and I, I wonder... I haven't done as much reading as you or a study or any of that kind of stuff as you. So I could totally be wrong in this, but 
But I almost want to go a little bit further in my thinking and say it's almost like a, an emergent thing. So yeah. when I have this new novel causal power, then that constitutes a group. So why is the clock tower on the lawn and myself on the university lawn not counted as a group? Well, I don't, when I'm there, there's no new causal power, but when, right. I mean, I, I can't think of a good example now about being on the university lawn that it would constitute a group. Um, but w if there is a scenario where there's a new causal power, then in my mind, that would constitute a new, I don't, I don't feel like I want to say substance, uh, but yeah. some new entity of some sort that yeah. can function holistically and yeah. perform actions. Yeah. So I think, um, I think the claim, the claim that I think you gets you everything you need is something like a supervenience claim. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, that's why I don't want to go strong as emergence. I want to say that groups supervene on individuals. And that's because I want to say something like, so the philosopher Stephanie Collins has written a lot on group responsibility. She wants to say, Whenever a group wrongdoing occurs, and it, there must be at least one individual wrongdoing that's occurred to ensure yeah. for that to happen, um, and, and that's because there's a relationship of supervenience between groups and individuals. Uh, I'm I'm wary of pulling them too far apart. Um, so you get a lot of you get a lot of suspicion of group ontology from people that think you're trying to erase the responsibility of individuals, mm -hmm. and then no one gets blamed for wrongdoing. Right, right. Um, but I think the the supervenience views hold group responsibility and individual responsibility closely enough that if if there's group wrongdoing, there's always individual wrongdoing. Yeah, and that seems so, like an intuitive claim to me. Yeah, I think that I think that is pretty intuitive. So a, as it applies down to the level of the church, yeah. Um, I guess you've got one end who would say, well, there's no actual entity called the church. It's really just the individuals um, in in some sense where, or you've got this more robust, I guess a more robust claim. And then you've got more of a middle ground. So mm -hmm. help me think through, I guess, just how would that functionally look in the local church? Pun not intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think um, when I read the new Testament, it seems fairly difficult for me to come away with the view that there's no such thing as the church yeah. because, um, and I don't, and I think we can very quickly say that Paul is using just a kind of um, strong metaphorical language in talking about the church as the body of Christ, um, that we're united to one another as a kind of common entity. I, I, I'm just skeptical that that really makes sense of what Paul's talking about. So I think really a lot of, actually the reason I got interested in social ontology was it seems really obvious to me if you look at scripture and the witness of the Christian tradition through history that there is such a thing as the church, which mm -hmm. is a group constituted by individuals. Um, there's such a thing as the one church of Christ. Let's just be clear. I'm talking here about the the worldwide mystical body of Christ rather than just yeah. talking about local denominations. It, it just seems like I can't deny that claim, especially if you're uh, I mean, in the Anglican Church, we stand up and say the creed every Sunday and say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I mean, I don't know how I can claim that if I don't think that there's such an entity as the church. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that there's a real push from theology for me to say that there has to be something. Um, there has to be a social entity called the church that we, we can try and understand and make sense of within our limited capabilities to do so. So... 
I mean, I, I just haven't read enough in this area, so you can tell me the answer to this, but are there people in theological circles who are wanting to say that no, there isn't actually a group called the church. It truly just is the individuals. And is there a reason they would want to do that if they did? Yeah. I mean, Kierkegaard comes close, actually. Kierkegaard okay. says, basically, there's um, there's only really the church eschatological. Yeah. Um, and so we should just stop talking about the church and start talking about individuals before God. And I, I, I mean, perhaps there are not many people that make those kind of claims theologically, but I've certainly been around enough contexts on the ground mm -hmm. that seem to be working practically on that assumption that our worship is not uh, part of something bigger. That what I mean, I mean, I guess the kind of context I'm thinking of is a place where you think what we do on a Sunday morning is just help people to uh, improve their relationship with God. We give them a context where they can do that together. And we're just this kind of group of people that spur one another on, but there's no like stronger metaphysical claim going on. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, is there anyone on the other end of the spectrum who has a very, very robust uh, thinking re regarding the church? Yeah. I mean, I think a, uh, I mean, there are certain people that I think say these um, kind of mis make all these kind of mysterious claims about the church, and and it's hard to pick apart how literally they're making yeah. these kind of claims, right? And I, I mean, to some extent, I think you could include some of what the Apostle Paul says in those <laughs> in that category, right? Um, what do you then, mean? He wasn't doing analytic theology. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I actually argue in the in the piece that you um, you talked about from the. LA Theology Conference, yeah. I, 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 I cite all these people in New Testament studies that are saying, I mean, sure, Paul's not doing analytic theology, but he is borrowing from political, social yeah. political um, language and concepts of his time and repurposing them in the, for the purpose of, um, of understanding the church. And I think, actually, if you're going to get a model of how to do analytic ecclesiology, I think Paul gives you a very good one there mm -hmm. um, because he understands the limits of that that those rhetorical devices but actually they help him to package his argument in a way which is um it's very clear and very accessible to his audience yeah. and i think really that's all that good analytic theology is hmm. but anyway that's not the question you asked the question you asked is that's um good. who thinks the church is this kind of um kind of mysterious substance so the the people that i cite in the the analytic journal of analytic theology piece are generally in the hegelian tradition in the 20th century social philosophy. So people like um, Figgis and um, I'm trying to remember who else I talked about in that article. Um, sorry, give me one second. Yeah, so in, oh, yeah. in I'll just read this quotation from um, from, Figgis, from Neville Figgis in his book, Church in the Modern State. Uh, so he says, um, does the church exist by some inward living force with powers of self-development like a person or, she, or is she a mere aggregate of a fortuitous concourse of ecclesiological atoms treated, it may be, as one for purposes of convenience, but with no real claim to a mind or will of her own? So Figgis' claim there, I take it, is uh, certainly not the latter, which I think yeah. actually is not, not a bad description of the kind of view I'm defending. <laughs> uh, he, he wants to say the church exists by an inward living force with powers of self-development like a person. Hmm. Um. I don't, I don't know that you can straightforwardly make sense of that through a, a functionalist social ontology. 
I think you'd need to move at least towards emergence, um, if not to a, a kind of substance dualism. So, I mean, yeah. there certainly are people that hold those views. I, I can't quite make sense of what that would mean. That doesn't mean it's not right, but um, mm -hmm. I, I can't quite make sense of how to think, to make sense of um, social ontology in these kind of terms. So if we take a functionalist view of the social ontology of the church, I mean, what ground level impact does this have to either practical ecclesiology or to just more theological questions about the local church? Yeah. So, so my account of my account of functionalism in the church. So remember I said that a functionist has to make some sense of how group, how individuals coordinate in order to bring about um, group level action. So in the case of Starbucks, the example I keep using, uh, Starbucks is structured by means of having like a board and a CEO yeah. and several managers that kind of, and you might think they sit down and they, they vote on which is the best policy to implement. Should we make another burnt frappuccino or should we, <laughs> you know, do something else? Um, but so clearly that's not how the, the, the worldwide mystical body of Christ operates if it's a, if it's a social whole. Um, the answer seems to me that if the church is a social whole, it does so by means of the, the organization of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, who implements the will of Christ through the through the body? Now, um, and actually, as as kind of unsavory as a of an analogy as it might be, if the church is akin to a social group, it's much more like a dictatorship than it is like a democracy. Yeah. Um, it the church is most one when we allow the persons of the Trinity uh, to work through us. That's the mm -hmm. that's that's the account of social ontology I give in this paper and the book that I'm writing. Um, and I think on the ground level, that makes a huge difference because uh, the question, how do we act as the one church? The answer is we discern the work of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a good theological answer. It's not a very good practical answer. Um, <laughs> now I think if I was going to try and unpack what it means to discern the work of the spirit, we, we, we instantly start hitting the barrier of um, traditions, right? We, mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine even amongst your listeners, there's a huge variety of traditions of that question: how do we how do we discern the work of the Spirit in the church? And I think you get strong view. You get views which say, by the by the structure of the institutional church, um, if the archbishop says this is what the Spirit is saying, that's how we discern it. And then you get that right down to the kind of congregationalist level of everybody just has to figure out what the Spirit's saying and then try and bring it about. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have a very good answer to that question other than um, other than to say, if you're a Protestant, this answer is really messy. Like, um, <laughs> it, and, it, and I don't think there's an easy solution. But, that's, but I think at least, that, at least we're starting to ask the right question. Mm -hmm. So in at least the Journal of Analytic Theology one, you kind of compare it to honeybees and terror cells. Yeah. So maybe walk me through that analogy yeah. and uh, what that looks like. Yeah. So in so 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 there's a book by uh, Christian List and Philip Petit, which is I think probably the most influential book in, on social ontology. It's called Group Agency. They, they defend this functionalist account of uh, of social holes, which which are agents by means of uh, group decision making procedures like voting. Um, 
Now, as I've said, the, that just clearly doesn't apply to the church in the same way. But they have this really provocative line or paragraph at the beginning of the book in which they say, um, of course, it's possible that the, a group might function as an agent without these kind of procedures. And they give two examples. So the, the, first of all, they say in spring, uh, honeybees try and decide where to nest. And they do this series of elaborate uh, wiggle dances where they send some bees out to look for suitable sites. And then uh, they decide with remarkable accuracy what the best place to nest for the spring is. Now, Liszt and Petit argue that honeybee colonies show a higher level of agency as a group than they do as individual honeybees, mm-hmm. which is is fascinating in itself. Um, and then the other example they give is, um, look at how a terrorist cell operates. Um, if, you're a, if you're a ground level member of a terrorist organization, um, you might act with no understanding of how your actions contribute to the wider whole. You might have no means of inputting a vote, for instance, in how actions are decided. Um, yet it's still possible that a group as kind of dispersed and disorganized as that could act as one body um, if it had a good commander at the top um, who distributed the action, the commands to the, the individual cell members so that they could act as one body. And, and the, so the third example, if I can give you a third example, which I think is... Yeah. Uh, this, I, I have to give kudos to my colleague, Jonathan Rutledge, Jonathan Rutledge for this, because this is his uh, his idea. Um, but the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, I think similarly to a terrorist cell, in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, it inflicts um, horrible films on all of us for the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, um, the MCU acts as one organization with this kind of overarching plan uh, and has a design to take over cinema, you might think. But actually, the the actors have very little awareness of how their reading scripts contributes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So much so that Gwyneth Paltrow apparently didn't even realize she was in one of the films because she just shows up and says the lines. Uh, But again, this is a good example where there's a a oneness, there's an agency of the, the whole but it, it doesn't arise just because uh, the members work really hard to try and act together. Now, I think what's similar about all these examples and what's helpful for the church is to think uh, that groups can act in these kind of as social wholes functionally um, in all sorts of ways, which don't require acting through through organizational structures like voting procedures and hierarchies. Um, and really, I think this is the start to think about how it could be that we are one body of the church through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so my claim is that the work of the Spirit is such that we, the Spirit works through us as individuals, but also as congregations and denominations, such that we are able to act as one body in the world, even if we can't discern how this could be the case, like Gwyneth Paltrow in the MCU. Um, and actually, you think... Um, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit is able to guide us and direct us in ways that um, you might think are not dissimilar to the way in which like a terrorist cell or the MCU functions in that um, instructions are given such that we can act as one, even if we can't discern how. A good question to ask here at this point. I tried to write or I tried to engage this stuff in, in an article that I guess for one of the edited editions you had done with Theologica. And I tried to apply some of the social ontology to particular questions that I seem to see surface quite a bit 
in at least our American context, which is that of multi-site churches or multi-service churches, where it seems no no matter where you're at, at least in America, every, there, every city has at least one church that's trying to do multiple sites. And that's whether they want to do pumping video into this other location or whether they want to uh, actually have another person there, but they call it the same church. And now post writing that you've got all the COVID stuff that's happened where everybody's been, I guess, you know, doing virtual church is in what sense do you think social ontology can make sense of the church when it is dispersed in such a decentralized way. So if we truly are virtual for six months, for a year, for a year and a half, does that have implications for how we should think about the church? I mean, I guess if we center it in the action and work of the Holy Spirit, it's okay. But I think for those of us who have stronger uh, intuitions about the, the locality or the institutional nature of the local church, it's not as clear cut. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I want to affirm both both and if 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 I can. Um, so I think because of what I've just said about the importance of the, the 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 oneness of the church derives from the person of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I think, in a sense, there's nothing that we can do to destroy the unity of the church, um, the one body of Christ. There are things that we can do to act against our nature um, and to resist the, the oneness that the spirit brings about. Absolutely. But the oneness of the, the oneness of the church is a, a confession of faith, not an empirical reality. That's, that's my view on church unity. And I think that's really important in a time like COVID to say, actually, we're no less the one body of Christ because we've been dispersed. But that, but that doesn't mean that um, liturgically and at the local church level, that the norm should be that kind of dispersion. In fact, I actually think that we can see, like through reflecting on what it is to be the one body of Christ, we can see that actually uh, there is a kind of symmetry, I think, that should obtain between the local church and the one body, which is that we are drawn together into community by the work of the Spirit. And I think as human beings that are physical embodied creatures, um, there is something that is tr- that is that is lost when we aren't gathered and Mm -hmm. there are ways in which we don't reflect the one body of christ as a local church community when we're dispersed um and i mean also because i'm an anglican i i mean i suppose there are people that are not anglicans that think this but i i i think that sharing the sacraments together is is crucial for the life of the the church Mm -hmm. and so and i i'm just not confident that we can do that on zoom (laughs) or through a video through a video screen like it just doesn't it's it, to me, it's not really, um, it, it's against the nature of what sacraments are, which is these physical, tangible embodiments of, of, of spiritual realities. And as soon as you make them virtual, we lose something crucial about that. Yeah. In some senses, it's no longer a physical, tangible thing anymore. Uh, right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I, Cause I mean, I wouldn't, if I had a video, let's say I had a videotape of someone 20 years partaking 20 years ago, partaking of it. What would I, if my intuition was to say that it's, a, it's still the same thing if I'm doing it over video, well, what if I'm doing it over a period of time where 20 years ago, my pastor did it um, or my priest did it and yeah. I'm going to just play that video during it. Th- that seems 
extremely counterintuitive to say that that is <laughs> you're sharing the same meal, uh, the same yeah. sacrament at that time. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which like um, being together in the same space. Um, I mean, I've done a bit of work actually in thinking about the application of psychology to thinking about liturgy. And actually what you find in a lot of ritual studies work is that acting in the same space at the same time with people brings about a kind of cohesiveness in group mm. action that you just can't achieve um, when we are. So, I mean, like now we're having this conversation and um, my attention is just so um, distracted by everything. Like you, you're a tiny speck in the corner of a, of a otherwise big room. Right. Um, yeah. But actually when we're together in the same space, it's not really possible for that to be the case. You actually demand my attention in ways that you just can't, at least in the current way that we have um, video calls set up. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe there's some kind of futuristic world in which we kind of plug plug church into our nervous system. I hope, I really hope that doesn't happen, but you know. <laughs> oh, it, it could end up being like, what's that movie? Uh, man. It's the one everybody talks about. It's the, he, the dude gets in like the capsule and then he's like, actually something, something else. Oh, man, why not can't the I think of the name? Not the Matrix. No, not the Matrix. It's, <laughs> I was um, say. William Lane Craig has used it as an example for the incarnation. I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's super pop. I cannot believe. Ava- I am Avatar? Forgetting it. Avatar. Yes, that's it. That's it. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> it, is it? Is there a possible scenario where basically I'm like. I actually have all these physical sensations that I'm experiencing it, but it's not really my body. And that seems still problematic to me. Yeah, um, it does to me. I mean, I think, I think it's harder to see, to think why perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I, I have the same intuition as you, which there's something deeply problematic about that. Um, but yeah. I think you, th- there are ways you could kind of spin these thought experiments, the, the future of sacraments, AI and sacramental <laughs> theology. I mean, you know, there's a there's oh, a paper well, we just to be gave somebody a paper idea. <laughs> I like that title. Uh, that's a you mentioned the psychology uh, piece of liturgy. I think that's super fascinating. Do you have any resources that you might recommend on, on that? Because I think that's that's really right up at least my alley, and I'm sure it is some who are listening. Yeah. So I um. So I'm I'm currently finishing up this book on ecclesiology at the moment, and in my chapter on the Eucharist, I have a whole section on this on um, tremendous on the Eucharist as a kind of social cohesion. So the book that comes to mind is there's a book by William McNeil, which is called uh, I think it's called Keeping Together in Time. It's a I think that's right. It's about the psychology of uh, military military drills and mm. uh, synchronized dancing. Uh, and that's a lot of the, the work I've done um, comes from that kind of work. There are other people yeah. doing stuff on uh, how ritualized meals bring us together. Um, I actually have a paper in Modern Theology um, on the Eucharist as remembrance and what it means to how, how the Eucharist is an act of group remembrance. And so I touched on some of those things in there. Um, but yeah, they're the things that come to mind off the top of my head. That that one is recent. It's pretty recent, isn't it? The modern theology piece? Yeah, it came out in January, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've got that filed away somewhere for I need to read this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, awesome. Now, one question that came across uh, from one of our listeners, which I think you know him, Chandler Warren. 
Yeah, he um, was one of my students uh, at the Largo Institute. Okay. Perfect. So he wanted to, to you to answer this question. Do individual Christians have a responsibility to seek forgiveness and reconciliation? Uh, maybe I'm putting you on the spot. On behalf of the church. And does the answer change if they aren't part of that church's tradition, denomination, heritage, etc.? Yeah, th- thanks for the nice, easy question there, Chandler. I think that's a good, <laughs> perhaps that's a good testament that we we taught him well while he was uh, in our time at St. Andrews. But yeah, I think it's a complex question. I think um, I think the the answer ultimately that I want to give is yes, that as members of the church, we are, if we are truly bound together as a social whole, um, then if it's possible that somebody can act on behalf of the church in causing wrongdoing, um, then while we're not as members of the group necessarily responsible for that wrongdoing, um, we do have a responsibility to seek reconciliation and to, to bring together the wronged party and um, the individual. So, and I think you can... I think that that distinction between um, the responsibility for the wrongdoing and the responsibility for creating reconciliation is absolutely key. Hmm. Um, I think I follow Collins in thinking if if some wrongdoing has happened at a group level, then at least one individual is responsible for um, in some way. Probably often in case of group responsibility, often um, it's way more complex than that. The way in which individual actions combine means that unpicking individual responsibility from group responsibility is very difficult. Um, But I I almost think that if we get obsessed with that question, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, um, which is when somebody has been wronged by the church or by my church congregation, actually, as a member of the church, my responsibility should be to try and um, to make amends in some way Mm. on behalf of the church. So I yeah I yeah. think ultimately that that that's that's the that's the way to go. Now I mean as Chandler's picking up on in that question it it gets complex. Um and I think what he's picking up on is really that um perhaps we're not always clear who belongs to the one church. Yeah. Um and I I suppose again this is back to to my cop out of depending on what tradition you're coming from we're going to cut the cake slightly differently, right? Yeah. Um, and where we draw the lines of um, who's the me- who are members of the one church and who is acting on my behalf in the one church and who is a kind of um, an outsider that is claiming to speak on behalf of the church and isn't. Yeah. So I think that, it, it, yeah, it gets really complex around the edges when we start talking about these kind of cases. Yeah, it seems like a, a super relevant question. I mean, there's small, you know, if I'm in this local body and one person wrongs another person in some interpersonal conflict, am I responsible to, to help, I mean, reconcile or, or create restitution of some sort? And even at a larger scale, I guess at a denominational scale, am I responsible to help rebuild things that say neither of us are part of the Roman Catholic Church? If they do something wrong, Am I responsible to seek forgiveness and to to create this reconciliation for them? I would imagine probably most people's intuition is no. But then when I think just on the, you know, the scale of the universal church and the obligations that I have as a member of it, it seems that the answer would probably be more yes. Yeah. Um, But even then I I just have no idea depending on the, like if I'm epistemically unaware of it, 
and I don't have all the details and all those things. It seems like all that ends up playing a role in it. But yeah, man, what what a tremendous question and a tremendously yeah. relevant question. Yeah, I'm so, I'm sorry to keep doing this, but this is <laughs> I, this is the question I'm discussing in the last chapter of my book. So um, I'll give you the anticipation <laughs> to think about. I mean, I think it's a complex question, but this is really the. I it's, I end on a kind of somber note, which is to say, like, mm. if we if we're prepared to say that that we're united to the church in worship when we act, then we ho- we also have to be prepared to admit that when people act on the church's behalf in sinning in the world, they they act on our behalf in some way, and mm-hmm. we have to face the consequences of that as the church and seek reconciliation. And I mean, I think if you look at the way in which responsibility is depicted in particularly in the Old Testament. Um, but I think also it carries on to a lot of what Paul says about the church in, in his epistles. But if you look yeah. at somewhere like Amos, where God rejects the worship of Israel, um, the reason he rejects their worship is because they don't prioritize justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says that he won't listen to their singing or accept their sacrifices until justice flows like a river. Yeah. Now, it seems at least intuitive. It seems at least intuitive to me that there could be a member of the nation of Israel who is not unjust, but is still part of that nation, which is being condemned by God. Yeah. And while that individual might not be condemned as unjust, I think they still have the responsibility to bring it about as far as they can to ensure that Israel seeks justice. I think that's what their responsibility is as a member of Israel. Yeah, um, according, well, that, according, according to the role they play within that group, that, that's their responsibility. Yeah, and it's not to me. It's it's not like we're sent, we're imputing guilt to that individual who is not guilty. No. But it does seem that you can still have a responsibility, even if you aren't the the committing party in, in this scenario. Right. Hmm. Yeah. No, well. I want you to talk about your book a little bit more now. I didn't mean to mention it at the beginning and I was going to mention it at the end, but I keep forgetting and you've brought up this wonderful opportunity. So you've got this book. Talk to me about the other chapters that are in it. And then when is it supposed to come out? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just finishing it up now. So I'm, I, I'm supposed to send it off in, in August and all being well, if, um, if everybody's happy, it should come out at some point next year. Um, awesome. but it, 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 um, so some of the chapters we've already talked about already. So the, yeah. we've, the, the discussion of the Holy spirit and the church as an agent, that that's going to be one of the, the crucial chapters. Um, the first chapter is actually looking at the relationship between individuals and, um, social holes more generally. So the discussion we had about supervenience, mm-hmm. um, is going to crop up in that first chapter. And really the, what I'm arguing for there is, to say that actually we need some more nuance in that in our conversation about what individualism is and what collectivism is because actually i think in 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 certain circles i think these terms are kind of thrown around like insults without yeah. any any precision um and i think we need to be clear on just what the relationship between individualism and collectivism is so that's that's how we yeah. start off um and then i have a chapter on um the church as the body of christ now, I think perhaps, I mean, I don't know how how crazy my view is to some people, but I think the church actually is, in some sense, the body of Christ, just as I think that the bread and wine, is, once it's been consecrated, is, in some sense, the body and blood of Christ. 
Mm. I, I want to defend a parallel view of the Eucharist and the church as the, the body we consume and the body that we participate in. So mm. I use some of, um, if you're familiar with James Arcadi's work on the Eucharist, yep. Yep. I, I basically take James's account of the Eucharist and say that we can make sense of it in the context of the church as a socially extended body in the world. So that's my chapter okay. on Christology. I mean, that's probably that, the, the the craziest chapter that I have. <laughs> I don't know if it's crazy. I guess it's the it's the most, I guess, potentially contentious. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, there's part of me that I, I, I sense the intuitive pull to it, but there's our, uh, the other part of me that thinks, man, I just don't know if I can take on board the potential costs that I'm required to 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 eat <laughs> so, with, so what with, what's with the cost do you think what's the what what's your worry with the position i don't you know it's been a little while since i i've read that material so i don't keep them on you know <laughs> i can r- r- rattle them all off but it just seems um it's either it seems either incredibly thin where it's going to end up reducing to to nothing materially or it seems incredibly counterintuitive that it would constitute like my body in some sense. So I guess yeah. to take the Eucharist extended mind thesis, it seems either, well, that's, it's just going to reduce to, to a mystical spiritual meal a, a la Calvin, or it's going to mm-hmm. end up being an incredibly weird version of transubstantiation. Yeah. Well, where, <laughs> I mean, maybe I just I, understand it. I don't know. Where I think, where I think James's view is, is nice is that it it actually falls between those two camps. Um, so James thinks the the bread and wine is a instrumental extension of Christ's body, yeah. in the same way that um, well, no, not exactly the same way. In an analogous way, that somebody's prosthetic leg might be a part of an extended part of their body. Mm-hmm. Now someone can take their prosthetic leg on and off, um, but we still say we could still sensibly point to it and say. Uh, that's Jordan's leg. Yeah. Um, and the reason is because the relationship between you and your prosthetic leg is sufficiently intimate. Um, it's what we might call an instrumental union. You use it in such a way that it has become part of the system, which is your body. And um, that's what James wants to claim about the, the bread and wine. Um, and I actually think it's not a huge stretch to think that that's that's the analogous relationship between Christ and the church, which is that Christ acts through uh, the members of the church in such a way uh, that we are instrumentally united to Christ's body in the world. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Um, and that, I, mean, I just, I guess I need to think about it more and read more on it. <laughs> so that's that. Uh, but I do want to say, say, like, I think the book sounds fascinating and I can't wait to read it and recommend it and commend it to others, uh, given that I've read some of your other work and know that it's awesome. Uh, so I have no doubt the rest of this will be awesome based on this conversation. Now, for those who are interested in continuing to follow the stuff that you do, the stuff that you write uh, and those types of things, do you have an online presence? I think you have a Twitter. Do you yeah. have a website? Anything else that yeah, you would recommend I do. saying, yeah, check this out? Yeah, I put most of my publications on. I have a Weebly site, which is just joshuacocaine.weebly.com. Um, yeah. And maybe you can put a link somewhere to that. But yeah, I put most of my publications. And if I can put up 
um, preprint drafts to articles. I usually put them up there. So you should be able to find that. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the best place to go if you want to follow the stuff that I'm writing on. Cool. And you're no longer going to be, I guess, at St. Andrews. So I was going to give this big, you know, gushing. You've got all these awesome guys over there. But if you're not oh, you there... Should still, you should still do it. I mean, St. Andrews <laughs> is the place to be if you want to study... If you want to study analytic theology in a place which is connected to, to biblical studies, there's not. Yeah. I don't think there's a better place in the world to do it. Seriously, I think it's. Uh, I I have absolutely loved my time there. So, mm-hmm. and the the master's program, I know because I've taught it and I've sat on sat in on a number of classes. It it really is a a great thing. So I'm happy to commend it, even <laughs> though I'm I'm moving on to to something different. Um, I really would commend it, and there's some great people there. Yeah, well, that, that, it, I've always been jealous, and I've always thought, man, it would be so awesome to be able to be a part of that program. So, even if you're not there, I will still hold <laughs> it in high regard. Um, yeah, because I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, at least for me anyway, Oliver Crispus, you know, one of those kind of like pinnacle theological heroes, models. I've said, man, he's doing really good work, really unique work, and I, I like the way he's going about uh, the dogmatic practice, and I want to emulate him in a lot of ways. Yeah, so. That's cool. So I guess this has been really informative, really helpful. And I encourage everybody who's been listening, no matter when you're listening, if you're listening to this before the book comes out, you know, keep, keep it, uh, uh, like write it down or something. We'll remind you if you're listening to this after the book has come out, I'll try to remember to retroactively go into the notes and add it so that you can <laughs> click it and go buy it yourself. Cause I think it's probably going to be a really helpful, uh, piece to add to your library and to engage with, especially, I mean, this is, the, the wonderful cross-disciplinary stuff that's really useful for, I think, local church pastors to engage in these types of exercises and to think about to answer questions that are uh, practically impacting your church, particularly the one about the forgiveness and reconciliation. I think, man, that's, if, if nothing else, I mean, that is utterly practical. So if your thing is to be super pragmatic, well, that, there it is. So re- read the rest of it too. But I commend it to you. And thanks, Dr. Cockaine, for taking the time to talk with us. This has been really fun. And uh, everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.